we can go into mediation with a flexible mindset, willing to look at different options, we're much more likely to reach a better resolution. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, attorney Holly Draper. We're excited to welcome Jennifer Hargrave from Hargrave Family Law to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Jennifer is committed to helping good people and broken marriages using strategic solutions throughout the divorce. She's board certified in family law and is an active advocate of collaborative divorce. She's a member of the Texas Academy of Family Law Specialists, the Dallas Bar Family Law Section, and Collaborative Divorce Texas. She's been frequently recognized by her peers with an AV preeminent peer rating. She's also repeatedly made the lists for Texas Super Lawyers, Best Lawyers in America, and D Magazine's Best Lawyers in Dallas. Thank you for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Holly. I'm happy to be here. So can you give us a little bit about your background and how you got started in family law? Yes. Um, listen, when I was in law school, there were all kinds of shootings in family law happening at the courthouse. And I was determined the one area of law I was not going to do was family law. So I didn't start off wanting to be a family lawyer. I was, you know, happy to stay steer clear of that. So I went into civil law and ended up actually uh, working in-house counsel for a big broker dealer in the financial services industry that was then bought out by a big bank. And, um, and it was soul crushing work for me. It was so boring. I just was dying. And so I had a colleague, um, I, a friend, I had a friend who was a mediator here in Dallas. Her name is Gay Cox. And so I was looking to make a change and I, I took Gay out to lunch and um, I had read an article she wrote about collaborative law. I had never heard of this before. And I felt like when I read that article, the skies parted and you know, I, I, the voice of God beamed down on me and was like, this is it. And so I just felt such peace and motivation. And I was so excited to learn about collaborative divorce. So um, I went to a training that was done by Janet Brumley here in Dallas, and, uh, and it was fabulous. And I, I developed some really key core friendships um, with other people who were in the training. And that was really my entry into family law was through collaborative divorce. I had a similar start where I started out in civil litigation too, and never intended to get into family law and found, my, found myself there and ended up loving it. And, but that's interesting that collaborative is what got you into family law because I never even heard of collaborative law when I was first getting started in family law. And it wasn't until much more recently that it started to become more mainstream and become a part of more people's practices. You know, I, my background was, I grew up as the daughter of a clergyman. So I'm a, a, a priest kid or pastor's kid. And, you know, ministry was just a part of our lives growing up. Um, and when I read about collaborative law, what I really saw was this hope that there is a way to help people through this incredibly traumatic, difficult time and help bring true resolution and peace, really so they can get on with the rest of their lives. And the analogy that I had in the very early days was this really seemed like hospice care for the dying relationship. And I know that sounds corny, but 
that's what that was sort of the the vision that I had for you know what a divorce could be that it wouldn't have to end in total destruction. So you know it was idealistic back at the time. I've um, I've since experienced a lot of collaborative divorces and regular divorces and high litigated high conflict divorces. Um, and you know, but I still hearken back to that vision. I still hold out that hope. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with collaborative law, can you kind of explain what that process is? Absolutely. Um, in the collaborative law process, we actually have a statute uh, in Texas. Texas is one of the first states to have a statute that governs the process. And so we're, we're really innovative in this regard. But in the family law context, um, both parties hire lawyers and they commit to resolving their conflicts outside of the courtroom. So um, while it's similar to mediation and you know that we're really looking for conflict resolution and sometimes it in involves mediation, uh, what, we, what we're not doing is threatening each other. Well, you know, screw you, I'm just gonna go see you at the courthouse then um, because we can't. And the, the, the thing that makes collaborative law unique and I think makes a lot of lawyers bristle at the idea of doing collaborative law is what we call the collaborative commitment. And the collaborative commitment requires that um, if the parties are unable to resolve their dispute in the process, then they have to fire their lawyers and start all over. They have to go hire new litigation counsel. And what was discussed in the collaborative process um, cannot be used as evidence. It's protected just like any other uh, alternative dispute resolution process. So what, you know, I, I totally understand why lawyers bristle at that, but what I really understand is the value of that, especially for my clients, right? Because this is about what's in my client's best interest. It's not what it's about in my best interest. Um, and for my clients, it affords them protection because we are committing to full disclosure. So the parties are going to come to the table in the in joint settlement conferences. These days we're doing it over Zoom, uh, but they come to the table and they're obligated to disclose information. We're going to share readily share information as part of the process. And, you know, I don't want my clients sitting across the table from, you know, Holly Draper, queen of cross-examination, who's then going to be able to use all that information she just got about them in the process um, against them, right? That's not helpful to the client. What we want to do in the collaborative process is really create a safe place because while lawyers are still advocates in the process, and we absolutely are, we don't, we don't lay that part of it down we're really all working together to find the resolution. And it's a dramatic difference in how we show up in the process, because instead of, you know, waging a war, instead of being, you know, on the battlefield, um, which is needed sometimes, so this isn't appropriate in all times, but really we're part of the resolution process. And oftentimes we involve a team. So we have a mental health professional who's neutral, who will come in and work with the parties, not as a therapist, but really work with them, first of all, in the team meetings to make sure that, you know, we're being aware of all the emotional uh, stuff that's going on because it, I mean, this is hard. It's hard work. You're sitting there with people who get triggered. You get triggered. I mean, you know, it's, it, it can be a big trigger fest. So we really need to be aware of the emotions and help keep it safe for people. Um, but then they'll also work with the parties offline um, to help them develop their parenting plan. And I, and that's one of the things that parties walk away from the process really feeling like, 
they got a lot of added value uh, out of the process because they were working with the mental health professional at resolving issues and parental conflicts um, during the process. The other person we often use is a financial neutral. And so instead of having two experts, you know, working on the financial case issues in the case, this financial professional will help gather information and help generate options. And sometimes, you know, we have to do a business valuation, so we'll hire a neutral business person. Um, we do these sessions, typically they're two hours. We find that's about the extent people can stand to be in a room with each other under this kind of pressure um, and still be constructive, still be able to think clearly and think through issues. Um, and usually we have about three to four sessions and they'll do the work offline with the, the neutrals and we come together and craft a final, you know, uh, decree. And, um, and then the people go on their ways. So a lot of times when we mediate through litigation, we can end up with a partial agreement. Is that something you ever see through the collaborative process? And if so, how does that shake out where the collaborative lawyers are supposed to be fired if you don't resolve the case through collaborative law? So typically, I mean, it, it, the collaborative process, um, I, I haven't had any circumstances where people have reached a partial settlement, really often for the same reasons why we don't typically reach partial settlements in mediation, sometimes we do. Um, but, you know, just like with mediation, if you weren't in collaborative, whatever agreements you reached, you know, you can put into a collaborative law settlement agreement and that's binding. So it, it can be as, um, as uh, you know, binding as a mediated settlement agreement. And then you would go on and litigate the other issues. Um, it's a good question. I haven't seen it happen. But what I do know is that, you know, it's not unusual for people to hit roadblocks. Um, where we come to issues that we just can't settle easily. And that's the time when we really have to go to the toolbox and we really have to get creative and we have to look for other options. And it is not at all uncommon for people to, um, to go to mediation and uh, to help get them over that final hump. The other thing that's really helpful um, that I encourage my clients to do, if they're having second guesses, you know, I, I often say there's kind of a, there's um, an itch to litigate. People have a fantasy idea of what things, what's, what is, what is going to happen in the courtroom. Um, and so if they, if they have that itch, they're just unsettled. They don't feel like, you know, they're ready to sign. Then we often will go get a litigation opinion. And so I'll contact, you know, litigation attorneys to sit down with them who would be attorneys that would possibly represent them if the case were to opt out and to really kind of tell them like it is, you know, what's likely to happen and help give a second opinion as to the deal that's on the table. And that's been very helpful too. I think it really helps give people some confidence to move forward in knowing that, you know, this is a good option for them. And of course, if it isn't, then go hire litigation counsel, you know, and <laughs> litigate. But in all the years I've done it and all the collaborative cases I've done, I, you know, I've maybe had two that opted out um, for various reasons. So I just don't, it just doesn't happen that often with a good team. So you mentioned early on that, you know, not every case is right for collaborative law. So as attorneys, how can we recognize when a client might be a good fit or when the parties might be a good fit and when we should be steering more towards litigation? 
You know, um, first of all, I think that has a lot to do with your experience um, as a, a collaborative attorney and to know whether or not collaborative is a right fit for you. I've seen incredibly complicated, difficult, nasty cases that would have taken years in a high conflict setting get resolved in collaborative divorce because of the skill of the team. Um, and so for me, one of the biggest factors is, you know, who's going to be representing the other side are, do they believe in collaborative divorce? Is this, you know, is this something that they are going to be able to help their client do? Or, or is that attorney, are that attorney and I going to be able to have frank and open conversations and give each other feedback? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, you really have to set your own ego aside um, in order to really help find the best solution for clients. And that's what it's all about, in my opinion. So, you know, one of the first things I, I look at is who are the other professionals involved? And because honestly, there are just some lawyers who will never do collaborative. And that's okay. Not everybody needs to do collaborative. And if it's not your thing, that's okay. If you're curious about it and you're interested, um, you know, let, and the other lawyer does a lot of collaborative, have a conversation about it, about why it might be good. So I start there. That's where I start because I don't want to just say, well, if you have this type of client, it'll never work. I think with the right team, almost any kind of case would work. Obviously, if there's domestic violence, that's that's one of the huge red flags. And if there has been a history of abuse in the relationship, um, you know, that's one that I I would I would not necessarily recommend for collaborative divorce. I say that with some hesitation because we also know how traumatic uh, family vi violent cases are in litigation. And so if you have somebody who, you know, I mean, it is, it is possible. I wouldn't rule it out altogether. It is possible that you could put the proper precautions in place to help somebody. So I, I keep an open mind. But what I want to see in my client is somebody who's focused on the big picture, somebody who knows and understands the value of, of resolution, of closure, of getting through this phase in their life and is willing to let go of the hurts and the resentments. Um, People don't always start there, but if, you know, there are glimmers that they're going to get there, then that's somebody who's going to be a really, a really good candidate for collaborative divorce. Um, obviously, people who, who can see the value in the relationship post-divorce, you know, so often we know that um, divorce doesn't end the family relationship. <laughs> it just changes it, and a highly litigated divorce is going to change it in some pretty stressful ways that's going to make it really difficult to sit next to each other at the soccer games, right, or at the graduation or the weddings or whatever it is that happens in the future, whereas I think if we have a process, when we have a process that allows people to be heard, that really focuses on their goals and their desires and helps get them in a place where they're ready to move on to that next step. We just have a completely different outcome. You have to commit to collaborative law at the beginning, or if you find yourself in the midst of an ugly, litigious, horrible fight, can you change course in the middle and switch to collaborative? <laughs> you can. Um, yes, you can always opt into collaborative so long as both parties want to do that. Um, that might happen when, you know, if you're in the middle of a, a, a highly litigious case and one of the parties decides that they, you know, their lawyer is the one who's really driving the conflict and they decide to change lawyers, if they were to hire a collaborative divorce attorney, um, 
that certainly could happen. I mean, you know, most collaborative divorce attorneys who really love collaborative divorce don't love litigation. So they don't, they're not usually the ones who start off with those cases. But, you know, the parties can always, what I would say, come to their senses <laughs> and realize there's something more important and more valuable than continuing the fight. And yes, they can always opt into the collaborative divorce process. So you mentioned a little bit ago about practice groups, and I know there's a big collaborative community that you're involved with as well. Can you talk kind of about practice groups, what they are, if you need to be in one, and give us information on that? Sure. So um, collaborative practice groups formed really as a way for like-minded professionals to connect with each other, to um, grow their collaborative skills, to problem solve issues. Uh, they're made up of lawyers and the mental health professionals and financial professionals as well. And they're really um, these little groups of, um, uh, of professionals who really foster and build trust relationships. Um, for anybody who's new to collaborative, uh, law, I would say it's a great way to get connected, to join, um, to join a collaborative practice group, to get that mentorship, um, to and also to get referrals and to to know when you when you have a collaborative case that you have people on the other side that you can trust. You do not have to be a member of a practice group, so it is just an added benefit if you want to delve deeper into collaborative law and really immerse yourself in a lot of the training and um, mindset work that it takes to be a really good collaborative professional. If someone was interested in joining a practice group, how would they even find out how to do that? So if you go to collaborativedivorcetexas.com, that's a great place to launch your search for practice groups. Um, but also I think if you just Google, usually the practice groups are very geographic centric. So they're really um, defined by the area that you're in, because that's most of the time you're going to, you know, be sharing cases in that area. Um, there are some practice groups that are open and welcome new members. There are others that are um, a little more tight knit. They've been with each other for years and really um, cherish that relationship. But I, I would still absolutely contact those members if you're interested in learning more, because they can help guide you wherever you are, wherever you're located, um, in how to find a practice group. When I did the training, we started our own practice group. So we uh, we were actually the first practice group that had um, the interdisciplinary professionals join us. And it was great. And, you know, we used to meet uh, monthly and we would have speakers come in and um, and really talk about the issues that were pertinent to the collaborative practice, you know, really building out that part of your business, um, but also, you know, those skills that it takes to, to work with people in the collaborative process. Do you ever do the collaborative process in cases that are not divorced? Do you do them in just custody cases, modifications, those type of things? Yes, um, it certainly is possible to do a collaborative case. I think in a modification, it could be extremely helpful. One of the things I find is that, you know, look, if the issues are simple, the people, you know, their parties are in agreement on everything, we don't need a full process, right? Because they already know what they want. And so sometimes if it's just a child support modification and they, you know, know the dollar figure, we don't have to go through a whole collaborative process. 
um, it really is the, the collaborative process is really a form of dispute resolution. So if there aren't any disputes, then just get it done, right? Um, but if there are disputes, it is a way to help the parties resolve that. So the other interesting thing is that it has expanded beyond collaborative law. There are certainly lots of potential for its use in, uh, in like probate matters, you know, when you can bring families together. But also it's been used in other civil contexts as well, things such as medical malpractice, um, you know, where, where the val there is value to the relationship, there is value to maybe acknowledging, you know, faults. Um, so there are there are other areas where it's being used, and I would encourage people beyond family law to look into how it could be used. Also, employee employer disputes is another area where we've where it has been used. So, are there any elements of collaborative law that can be used outside of the collaborative process for those lawyers that are involved in litigation? Absolutely. Um, I know that my collaborative training has made me a much better lawyer. Uh, you know, there are so many skills that you learn in the collaborative training and, and in sitting with people, you know, in that process that translate to litigation. So the first thing I would say is um, collaborative divorce is really based on interest-based negotiation. This comes out of the Harvard Negotiation Project where we start by asking people, what, what are your interests? What do you want? What are your goals? Why? It's the why question that is so important because, you know, people say, well, I want to keep the house. Okay. Well, why do you want to keep the house? Well, I want stability for my children. All right. Stability for your children is kind of the goal here. Um, you want to keep them in the same neighborhood with the same playmates, you know, with the same schools, got it. You know, then what we do is we move to the next step of, okay, you know, what are all of the options? And we just, we get, I have a huge whiteboard in my office and you literally sit there and you brainstorm every single option um, that's possible, right? So, you know, you, you do the crazy options. I mean, you all can keep the house, you know, dad's in the house when it's his time, mom's in the house when it's her time. We'd sell the house, you know, divide it up, all of that stuff. Have grandma buy the house. I don't know. We would come up with all kinds of options. And then we go, we gather the information we need to really evaluate the consequences. And, and when we begin to look at the consequences, we can easily rule things out. So, you know, both continuing to own the home is going to create a whole host of problems. Who's going to be required, you know, in charge of maintenance, how's the house going to be kept up, you know, what if you have the lights on all the time during your time and here I am stuck paying, the right, we don't need that, that creates additional conflict. But the parties get to decide that themselves, they get to really look at what are the consequences here and then we reach a resolution. Well, that process is not unique to collaborative. I mean, I use that when I'm preparing a client for mediation and we're going into the mediation process, I, I walk them through that. You know, I sit there and, and help them formulate their why. And, you know, when we have, when we can go into mediation with a flexible mindset, willing to look at different options, we're much more likely to reach a better resolution. 
Um, it's hard to stay in your creative problem solving mode though, when you're triggered. And so another area that I have gotten so much out of in my work in collaborative attending the, the continuing education courses is understanding what happens to our brain under stress, right? And so, you know, that amygdala goes off and we can't access the creative problem solving part of our brain because we are in fight or flight. And so knowing what do you do in that moment and recognizing that in other people. Um, that, listen, that kind of information about human psychology, definitely good information to have. So you don't have to get that from collaborative, but you know, really looking at conflict from a holistic perspective, I think is so helpful and creates really an advantage um, in litigation as well. And I've seen the collaborative component of the mental health professional be used in litigation several times with a lot of success where the parties are on board with trying to reach agreements and they want to do what's best in the best interest of their child. They just don't know how to get there. And by bringing in that neutral mental health professional to work on the parenting plan, even within the context of litigation, it has every time I've seen it led to a good resolution on the kid issues. You're exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the side effects of the collaborative movement, um, and I don't know, I didn't practice law before collaborative, but I know that, you know, through the collaborative process, I have gotten to know and really connect with um, so many mental health professionals and because they are an integral part of the collaborative process, but they are also an integral part of helping families in litigation. And, it had that part of it has certainly made me a better lawyer. Um, and I, I'm so thankful to those mental health professionals who really have recognized an area of, of expertise, an area of specialty, you know, creating parenting plans and the parenting coordinator um, role and, and even the parenting facilitation role, which is one that is exclusively for litigation. So, you know, using mental health professionals to really help us in the divorce process is critical. And that's, you know, whether you're in the collaborative or you're in litigation. If you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? You know, for me, the, I consider this work to be a tremendous privilege. We are walking alongside people during one of their darkest times, right? It is a time that is filled with fear. It is a time where there's so much uncertainty. And a lot of times people can't even begin to imagine what life is gonna be like after divorce. But when you've been practicing, you know, I know that um, life after divorce can be great. And I see so many clients, I've learned so much from my clients who've taught me um, how to have a good divorce. And that is, it is possible. And I always hold out that hope for clients. If you are new and starting in, to do this work, you know, keep an open mind. Um, find a professional who practices the way you want to practice. I am so thankful I had mentors early on when I started doing family law. I mean, Janet Bramley was one of those mentors who really showed me, you know, how to be a lawyer, how to um, have a family, how to juggle all of that. She taught me the importance of getting in the courtroom and learning how to try cases because really to be a good settlement attorney to really help your clients get the best outcome, I think it's really helpful to have that, that courtroom experience. 
And um, I might not have done that on my own if, if I hadn't been nudged in that direction. So I think in the area of family law, mentorship is key. I agree 100%. And I, I think there are so many experienced attorneys who are willing to mentor younger or less experienced attorneys and willing to help. And I'm sure most of them are going to be busy and you have to be respectful of that, but they want to help. They want to help bring up the next generation of great family lawyers behind them. You're exactly right, Holly. So if our listeners want to find out more about you or get in contact with you, where can they find more information? Well, of course, they can go to our website at hargravefamilylaw.com. We would love for them to check us out. But also, I would um, love to direct people to the YouTube channel, uh, Hargrave Family Law YouTube channel, where we have um, interviewed a lot of great collaborative divorce attorneys and other attorneys um, as well about a variety of topics. Um, and just to kind of check out and, and listen to that, I think is a great resource for anyone who's interested in learning more about collaborative divorce um, or who just has questions about family law practice. Uh, we have an absolute excellent episode coming up on third party rights featuring Holly Draper. So that'll be great. <laughs> When actually by the time this podcast goes out, that podcast will have already aired, but uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely check out the Jennifer Hargrave show and it, it has a different audience and a different point than this show. Yeah. So it, you can find out a lot of different information than you'll be able to get on our podcast. So we are so happy that you joined us today and had lots of great information about collaborative law. And I'm excited to try and build that up in my own practice because I've really learned to see the value in that. And uh, so thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Holly. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.